Good morning, Grace. It's good to see you, and it's good to be seen. Turn in your, thank you, turn in your Bibles to uh, Psalm 133. We're back in the Psalms of Ascent, and I will kind of explain again what they are about. But first, let me tell you a little bit about my sabbatical. And let me thank the elders that they love their pastors so much that they give us sabbaticals every five years so we can uh, rest and refresh. And if you're new in the last three months, let me introduce myself. My name is Benji and I'm the senior pastor here. And I've been gone on a sabbatical, which is a, a time of refreshment and rest where we can get renewed. So that's where I've been for the past three months. So What did I do on my sabbatical? I did a whole lot of nothing. That's what they're made for. I just kind of woke up every day and say, what am I going to do today? Which is very interesting because I'm not used to doing that. I'm a workaholic. I rested and enjoyed my family. And I tended to my soul so that I would be renewed. We went and visited my parents and my family back in Oklahoma. And we were there for over a month. And Heather and I got to go out on some adventures and a lot of little dates together and spend time together. And I got to enjoy drinking my mom's sweet tea on the back porch while listening to thunderstorms. I got to do some fishing. I got to visit with some friends from high school. And surprisingly, we only drove through the Texas panhandle going to and from our way to Oklahoma. So a lot of people said, how was Texas? We never actually made it down to Texas to see friends because it just didn't work out that way. Now, I ended up going back to Oklahoma at a different time, and I went down to Dallas for just one day. And I went there mainly, well, to, get a, to go to DFW and fly home. But the main reason I went to Dallas-Fort Worth was to go to Heim Barbecue in Fort Worth. Like, that was my whole agenda of the sabbatical, really. When I bit into their bacon burnt ends, I mean, just Google them. When I bit into their bacon burnt ends, I literally thought I saw Jesus. I'm serious. (laughs) It was a spiritual moment. It was heaven. You know that George Strait song that says, Does Fort Worth ever cross your mind? Well, the answer, Mr. Strait, is yes. Fort Worth does cross my mind a lot because every day now I think about Heim Barbecue in Fort Worth. Honestly, eating Heim Barbecue may have been the highlight of my sabbatical. My soul was refreshed after that meal. So if you're ever there, I encourage you have to go. So overall, we had a very pleasant time seeing my family and just enjoying one another. And there were days when all I did was watch TV. I watched a lot of episodes of The Rockford Files, which is one of my favorite TV shows, and the old Hawaii Five-0 and the streets of San Francisco. I love classic TV shows from the 60s and 70s, so I watched a lot of my favorites. Interestingly, though, I didn't take as many naps as I thought I would. I went into this sabbatical thinking, I'm napping every day like a two-year-old, but I didn't. But one thing that I got to do a lot of is paint. I'm an artist, and I painted every day that I was here almost, with the exception of the time that I was in Oklahoma. So I spent many days in the little studio that I kind of got carved out in our garage, and Heather graciously just let me go in there and paint all day as she dealt with the kids. So it was very wonderful, and some of you have been asking about seeing some of these paintings. Some of you have seen them online, but here's a few of them. This is a, a painting that I did of Judas betraying Jesus there. 
the next slide is a picture of James Garner, Jim Rockford from the Rockford Files. I did a lot of these series kind of in an a Andy Warhol-esque pop art. Uh, the next one is Saul Goodman from Better Call Saul, if any of you watch that show, the AMC show. And the next one is a picture, of course, of Rod Serling. So how do I go on a sabbatical and not paint a picture of Rod Serling from the Twilight Zone? The next two pictures, uh, this one here is a picture of an African-American boy. As I process all the racial tensions going on in our, our country this summer, I processed that by praying a lot as I was painting in my little studio area and kind of praying and painting my way through what African-Americans are experiencing still in our country. So that was kind of a, a healing process for me to paint my way through it. The next one is another picture there. Uh, that I did of that. Now, the next one here is a, a woodcut that I did of John Calvin. And so what you do is you, you cut into the wood and then you, you press it and you make a print. And so here's a little print slash painting, the next one here of John Calvin. And that's what it kind of looks like. And that's his little life motto there, which is my heart I offer to you, Lord, promptly and sincerely. And the last one here is another painting I did of one of my favorite theologians, John Calvin. Now, speaking of John Calvin, turn in your Bibles to Psalm 133. I'm going to take a cue from John Calvin this morning because when John Calvin was banished from his church and and sent into exile for three years, he was finally able to return. And when he returned to his church and to his congregation, he just started preaching right where he left off. Calvin was preaching in the Psalms when he was exiled for three years. And when he returned, it was like, what verse were we at? Let's just pick up right there. And so that's what we're going to do today. I'm taking a cue from John Calvin, and we're going to pick up where we left off in May. We have two Psalms left in what are called the Psalms of Ascent. Now, if you remember, the Ascent Psalms are found in Psalms 120 to 134. And they were songs that ancient Israelites would sing as they made their way to Jerusalem to worship Yahweh, the sovereign Lord. Three times a year, the Israelites would make this pilgrimage. They would travel to Jerusalem during their three main festivals, and they would worship. And Psalms 120 through 134, the ascent psalms, these were the songs that they would be singing as they caravaned on their way to Jerusalem. So these psalms are road trip songs. These psalms were the mixtapes, if you will, that they would play in their cars as they drove up to Jerusalem. Now, what's interesting about Psalm 133 is verse 1. Now, before I read it, keep this in mind, okay? There were families traveling back then with lots of little children. And there were lots of questions, like the proverbial question, are we there yet? And there were lots of siblings doing what siblings do when they travel long distances in cars. There was a lot of, scoot over. There was a lot of, he's touching me. There was a lot of, mom. There was a lot of, leave me alone. You know what I'm talking about, right, parents? Just like the Magnus family, all crammed in our van and driving to Oklahoma, it took us four days, seven people in a van in the heat of summer. Let me rephrase that. Seven sinners in a van. Our oldest stayed behind to work his job, so it could have been eight sinners in a van on a very long road trip. Now, with all of that in mind, let's read verse 1. Look at verse 1 of Psalm 133. Hear the word of the Lord. Behold, 
how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. And all the parents said, Amen. The context of Psalm 133 is a road trip. Kids are crammed in the car. There's luggage. Cheerios are all over the floor. Are we there yet? He touched me. I'm hungry. I don't want to watch that movie. I want to watch this movie. There's a whole lot of that. That's the context of Psalm 133. But it's not just limited to families on long road trips. This is a true principle. This is a biblical principle that is true of families and businesses and churches and nations. It's a beautiful thing when any group experiences unity. But David is doing more than just giving us a nice universal principle here in Psalm 133. David is actually revealing the heart of God. David is showing us the heartbeat of the triune God that his people would dwell together in unity. David is is showing us God's heart, that God's heart is that we as a church would dwell together in unity and harmony. And that just makes sense, right? Because the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit has always dwelled together in unity. And so what David will show us in Psalm 133 is this. Unity flows downhill. Unity descends from above onto a church body from God. Three times in this psalm, David uses the Hebrew word for descending or falling. David knows something. David knows that if a church family is ever going to experience unity... It has to come from God. We can't manufacture this. It has to come from God. And so the door to unity in a church is humility. We each individually have to humble ourselves for unity to occur here. Unity flows downhill to the humble. Now, look at the first word there in verse 1. Behold. This is the Hebrew word. Greg mentioned it last week. It's used, and when the authors use it, they're inviting us into a scene, and they want us to observe something. That's the Hebrew word here, hene. It means, come here. Enter into this scene. Observe with your own eyes what I'm talking about. And so what does David want us to see In Psalm 133, David wants us to come close and he wants to point out to us just how sweet and how pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity. David wants us to see unity in action. He wants us to see how good it is when people are unified, when they're not bickering, when they're not squabbling with one another. David is telling us this. You guys got to come here and see this. Look at that. Look at that. Those people are unified. There's harmony. They're getting along with one another. They're not bickering. Look at that. Isn't that something else? Isn't that so good? But David doesn't just want us to see it. He wants us to experience it. That's the idea behind the word pleasant. David wants us to see that objectively, unity is a good thing. But he doesn't stop there. He wants us to experience it. He wants us in this church to experience it. 
He wants us to subjectively experience how pleasant it is when a church family is united, when they're unified. And that's the danger that every church faces. Do we experience subjectively the objective truth that we believe? Do we experience subjectively here at Grace the objective truth that we affirm? In other words, does what we actually believe as a church, does that affect our church culture? Does, does what we actually believe here, does that affect and change our church culture? Ray Ortland says, the doctrine of a church can be right, but the culture of that church can deny that doctrine. Listen, if you've not signed up for our daily emails, our devotionals that go out, send an email, pull out your smartphone right now and send an email to the office. Because this week, we're going to look at five devotionals from Ray Ortland. We need his prophetic voice in the church today. He's going to explain in these devotionals how we develop and cultivate this gospel culture that comes from the gospel doctrine that we believe. Ray Ortland says, the doctrine of a church can be right but the culture of that church can deny that doctrine. Think about that. The doctrine of a church can be right, on point, but the culture of that church can deny that doctrine. So relationships, our relationships are the true test of what we believe. Our relationships with one another are the true test of what we believe, not merely our statement of faith. We need our statement of faith. The true test of what we believe is not merely the statement of faith. It's our relationships. In other words, unity does not play alone in a sandbox. Unity is not an only child. Unity must leave the paper. Unity must leave the statement of faith, must leave the doctrinal beliefs, and then go be with others. You have to have both gospel on paper and gospel in partnership with one another. Gospel beliefs and then gospel community. You have to have both. That's what glorifies Jesus. I want to glorify Jesus with this church. I don't want to just glorify him with our doctrine. I want our church culture here to glorify him. We have to have both gospel doctrine and gospel culture. How we treat one another. So let's be honest this morning. We believe in the gospel here at Grace, right? Now the question becomes... Has the gospel that we believe created a gospel culture here? Does our culture here actually deny the gospel that we believe? Does our culture here, the way we treat one another and talk about one another, does that culture actually deny the very gospel that we claim to believe? Does how we treat one another or talk about one another deny what we say that we believe? Do we really have a gospel-centered culture here at Grace? We need to wrestle with that question. Or is it just gospel on paper? You see, you can have unity of doctrine, you can have unity of beliefs, but not see that fleshed out in real life, in real community. For instance, take your children on a long road trip, okay? There's unity of doctrine, if you will. There's unity of belief, Everyone gets in the van before they go on vacation, and everyone would affirm murder is wrong, right? Everyone would affirm hitting is wrong, complaining is wrong, biting one another is wrong. That's unity on paper. 
we all agree it's not right to hit one another. But seeing that belief lived out on a long road trip, day after day, that takes a miracle. We don't even realize it, but we are desperately dependent upon the Holy Spirit. But we're actually blind to this reality sometimes. We think all is well because we have solid doctrine on paper. We're we're conservative here at Grace. Our theology is conservative. We would rub elbows with and run in the same circles as conservative theologians like R.C. Sproul and Alistair Begg and John Piper. But you can be okay on paper, but not okay in reality. Not okay in community. Not okay in real relationships. And we see this in marriages, right? Many people sitting here today... Doctrine on paper, divorce is wrong. I'm committed to my wife forever. Doctrine, unity, on paper, in beliefs. But what's the marriage culture like? They're just functional roommates. See this in our country, right? Unity on paper, yeah. We're citizens of America. How we treat one another is different. This can plague, it can plague every relationship. To be unified, to see and experience subjectively what David is talking about here. In Psalm 133, it takes a miracle. So what does David mean when he says in verse 1 of dwelling in unity, brothers dwelling in unity? The Hebrew phrase is used in the Old Testament for sharing a meal with someone and for relatives and tribes living close to one another. Now, we may not say that. Live too close to my family. I don't know if we're dwelling in unity. Some of y'all will get that later. When your mother-in-law asks you. To dwell together in unity means that we share common interests. We meet common needs. So the idea is that we defend the family interest and we work hard to ensure its future. So think about our church here. Are you defending the family interests here? Are you working hard to ensure our future? Or do your, or do my, turning on me now, do my actions and my thoughts and my conversations undermine all of this? Listen, it takes a miracle for unity to happen. We're sinners. We'll mess this up. We will. We'll mess this up if we're not actively praying that God would unify our hearts. It has to come from above. It takes a miracle, which is exactly what David tells us in the rest of the psalm. Look at verse 2. What's this unity like? It's like the precious oil on the head, running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. So what does church unity look like? What does it look like to see gospel doctrine on paper create a gospel culture in a church? What does it look like to see gospel doctrine on paper and create that gospel culture in community with one another? The answer, it's like oil running down on a beard and dew falling down on a mountaintop. But what does that even mean? Well, in order order to understand David's word pictures here, we have to go back in time to ancient Israel. So let's talk about each one. First, beard oil. What does it mean that unity is like oil running down the head onto the beard and onto the robe? It doesn't mean that 
it's messy and you get oil all over the place. It doesn't mean that you'll have a well-trimmed and well-shaped beard. Listen, if you're a hipster and you use beard oil, this ought to be your favorite psalm. I mean, David has just kind of soft pitch lobbed a ball to you and you should hit it out of the park here and say, that's my life verse right there. This should be a hipster's favorite psalm. But beard oil ain't just for hipsters. It's for the whole church. Here's what David is getting at. Oil was used in the Old Testament when priests were ordained and consecrated to the ministry like Aaron in Exodus chapter 29. Oil was used to consecrate Aaron and other priests to do the work of the ministry. So what David is saying here is that when peace, when there is peace and when there is unity and harmony in a church body, it is then that we as a church are functioning as a kingdom of priests and we minister God's grace to one another. Listen, that was God's plan. That we would be a kingdom of priests. Not that you have a couple pastors doing all the work, but that all of us do all of the work. God's plan is that we would be a kingdom of priests ministering his grace to one another. You see it in Exodus 19, Revelation 1, Revelation 5. A kingdom of priests. So when unity descends from on high, from Jesus, we then move out to minister to one another. When the gospel becomes our culture and the miracle of unity happens with believers, we begin to take our eyes off of ourselves and we start ministering God's grace to others. When Jesus becomes everything to us, our treasure, our joy in this life, and the miracle of unity overtakes a church family, it's like oil running down on Aaron's beard and getting inside his collar. The Hebrew is literally the mouth of his robe. It gets everywhere. The idea then is that unity is a sacred blessing from Yahweh. It's all-encompassing, like oil. It gets everywhere. It creates a gospel culture that affects everything in the church. It affects our hearts. It affects how we treat one another, what we say, and how we talk about one another. Everyone in the church is affected. And when that miracle happens, we start looking not to our own interest, as Paul says in Philippians 2.4, but instead to the interest of others. I want that for this church. I want that so bad for this church. I want that for us, that we, by God's grace, by his spirit, would create a gospel culture here where we forgive one another. We really forgive where we assume the best of people's motives and their actions. We just assume the best and say, I'm probably mistaken because I'm a sinner. They probably didn't mean that. Where we have gospel courage to talk with someone that we have an ought against and not go talk to other people about them. Where gossip and slander die. Where we really just love one another because of Jesus. That's what I want more for this church. Gospel doctrine and gospel culture now the other picture that david gives us is mountain dew yes mountain dew is in the bible and it's good david says that unity is like dew falling down from mount hermon to mount zion what he's saying here when he gives us this picture is he's telling us that it takes a miracle it takes a miracle for unity to happen in a church Here's why it's a miracle. Mount Hermon was the chief mountain in the north. 
of Israel. Zion was the chief mountain in the south. Mount Hermon was the tallest mountain, coming in over 9,100 feet. Zion came in at 2,400 feet. And these two mountains were 100 miles apart from one another. So if dew was to leave Mount Hermon in the north and descend down 6,000 feet and travel over 100 miles and then replenish the inhabitants on Mount Zion, that would take a miracle, my friends, for that to happen. And that's David's point. It takes a miracle for unity to happen in a church. Understand this, Grace. It takes a miracle to get your eyes off of you and what you want. It takes a miracle of Holy Spirit proportions. And that's what David is telling us with these two word pictures, the beard oil and the mountain dew. He's telling us unity flows downhill. Unity comes from God. Three times in the psalm, David uses this Hebrew word, descend. He's trying to get us to see that unity descends from above, from God. He's trying to get us to see with our own eyes and experience true gospel-centered unity. He wants us to know that church unity is a God-wrought miracle. And therefore, the door to unity is humility for each one of us. The door to unity is humility. We have to humble ourselves and die to our wishes, die to our wants, die to our preferences. In a church, a marriage, family, business, nation, whatever, it applies. If we want to be a unified church, we have to humble ourselves and give up our wants and give up our wishes. Listen, I don't love everything about this church. I mean, there are some songs I'm like, ah, it's okay right? Maybe you're that way. There are some things I'm like, I don't like that. I don't like that. I changed the color. Listen, you wouldn't want me to get my way in this church, okay? The decor would be out of of this world. It'd probably be Twilight Zone themed. I think that would be a cool church. You don't want me getting my way. My point is that we all have preferences. I like that song, that one not so much. I like that coffee. I don't like that so much. Oh, they're out of my favorite syrup. Why are they out of hazelnut? I don't like vanilla. I mean, We all are this way. There are things about this church body that we all like or don't like. And that's okay. Those are preferences. I mean, I love this church. Don't get me wrong. I'm just saying there's things I would change. Mostly decor and things like that. Silly, stupid things that really have no significance. It's just me wanting my way. We have to humble ourselves for this kind of unity and pray. We have to repent of our selfishness, repent of our self-absorption and beg God to unleash the gates of heaven and bless us with gospel-centered unity. We have to ask for it. It just doesn't happen. Our preferences and our own personalities even can keep us from true gospel-centered unity. So these seemingly innocent things can actually paralyze a church, paralyze friendships, and paralyze fellowship. And that's why it takes a miracle, because we all have preferences. Theological preferences, I've heard people say, you're too reformed. And I heard people say, you're not reformed enough at grace. There's cultural preferences, musical styles, decor, etc. And the gospel It's the only thing that can cause us to lay down our arms, lay down our preferences, and become one. Central focus of everything here is the gospel, the life and death of Jesus Christ, that he mercifully does not give us what what we deserve, but he took it upon himself on the cross. This is why the gospel must be central in this church, because it's the one thing that we all agree on, right? 
It's the one thing that we all agree on. We must have gospel doctrine and gospel culture. Fixing our eyes on the finished work of Christ for undeserving sinners will help foster this kind of environment where we aren't up in arms because we didn't get our way. And so instead of killing our preferences, you know what most Christians do in churches, me, you, all of us? Many times, disciples end up killing each other, killing their own church. Gossip and slander and backbiting kills churches. It's like we're all walking around with daggers and just just doing this. We're bleeding out. Not going to a person that you have an issue with, but talking to someone else about them. That kills churches. If you want to put a church or put a marriage or put a business or put any relationship in the graveyard, that's how you do it. Listen, false doctrine usually, usually doesn't kill gospel-centered, Christ-centered, Bible-centered churches. But you know what does? Gossip and slander and complaining and not being unified. Paul says in Galatians 5, we actually start biting each other and devour one another. We become zombies that kill off a church. Think about it. What do kids do when they have an issue with their brother or sister? They hit, right? They bite. Sometimes they just bite because that's the only effective weapon that they have. If they're like two or three years old, they're like, this is the only defense mechanism I have is to bite. Think about this for a second. What if we came in here next week and we just bit each other? I mean, rolled up our sleeves and kind of walked around and said, okay, if you have an issue with anyone, just go up and bite them on the arm and leave like your little teeth imprint. That would be crazy, wouldn't it? And we may not do that literally, but churches are known for doing this, and I don't want that for us. I don't, I don't want that for us at all. I want the gospel, the good news that God saves sinners. The gospel that we believe here on paper I want that to shape our culture here. I want the finished work of Christ on our behalf to move from paper to community. I want to see gospel doctrine to create more gospel culture here so that we exist as a kingdom of priests and we continue ministering God's grace to one another. But it takes a miracle for this to happen. It it flat out takes a miracle. You cannot program this. You cannot plan this. It takes a miracle. It takes a miracle to humble yourself, doesn't it? As Ray Ortland says, authentic Christianity is miracle, not management. Well, here's what Psalm 133 looks like fleshed out in the New Testament. There's one snapshot of what it looks like in Romans 12, 9 through 18. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. And if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Imagine if this is what our culture was like here at Grace. What if we were all striving after these things while keeping our eyes clearly focused on the finished work of Christ? Romans 12 
is how you do what Paul said in Ephesians 4, 3. He said, be eager or strive to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. We don't have to strive for unity and peace with God. We have that. That's the good news of the gospel because of Jesus. But we have to do our part to die to selfishness, to die to pettiness, so that unity can happen here. What if we were all striving after these things while focused on the finished work of Christ? I think Psalm 133.1 would start to become the norm around here. Romans 12 is like the twin brother of Psalm 133. It actually tells us how and what Christian unity looks like in a church family. Unity flows downhill, though. And guess what? Jesus loves unity. So Psalm 133 is actually kind of teasing you and tempting you and wooing you to pray to Jesus for something that Jesus loves. Why is Jesus so partial to unity? Well, you only have to look at the Godhead to understand. The Trinitarian God that we serve and worship, one God eternally existing in three persons, and for all of eternity there's been unity in the Godhead. All three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are equal, and they're unified, and they're deserving of worship and honor and glory. Jesus loves unity And this psalm is trying to get us to see that. I want to love what Jesus loves, don't you? It's like, why would I not love what Jesus loves? Why why do I want dissension? Jesus hates that. I don't want that. Get that away from me. I want unity because that's what Jesus loves. I want to love what he loves. What did Jesus pray in John 17? That they may be one, even as we are one. That they may become perfectly one so that the world will know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. Jesus loves unity so much that he prayed for it. He prayed for us. He prayed for grace 2,000 years ago that we would be one. And Jesus prayed for us because he knew it takes a miracle for us to not be self-absorbed. It takes a glimpse, repeated glimpses of Jesus to reorient our sinful hearts. And that's why the gospel must be central to everything that we do here. Unity flows down from Mount Calvary to sinners like us. Unity flows down from Jesus. So let's humble ourselves and begin asking God to work this miracle in our hearts. And David ends his psalm with a promise to entice us to want this unity. He says in verse 3, For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. When David says there, he's pointing back to verse 1, pointing to unity, pointing to brothers dwelling together. And he's telling us that blessing and life forevermore is to be found in unity. In other words, God's blessings fall down on a church that's unified. I want God's blessing on this church, don't you? True life is found when we are unified. And Jesus offers his sort of life to those who cherish unity. Jesus offers every church his life if they will humble themselves. Now, the good news is that it's free of charge. All we have to do is humble ourselves. So why not? Why not us, Grace? Of all the churches in the world, why not us? If Jesus offers his blessing, if he offers his life to his church, then why not us? Why not now? Why not at this point in this church's history? Why don't we get in on this? We'd be stupid and crazy not to, right? I want to get in on this. Jesus is saying there's blessing, there's life. If you want it, it's yours. You've got to humble yourself. I want it. Do you want it? Who's with me? 
Who's in? Will you actively begin praying in your small groups, Sunday school classes, at your home, in your ministries for this kind of unity? Because not every church experiences this, this kind of unity. Not every church has this kind of gospel culture. Let's be one that does. Isn't this the heartbeat of God? Let's get in on this. This is what church is supposed to be like. Messy, yes. Yes, church is messy. I told some visitors last week, if you got issues, you'd be welcome here. You fit right in because we're messy. But a gospel culture helps heal the messiness by pointing people to sinners, by pointing people, sinners, back to the Savior. Gossip, slander, complaining, it's exhausting, isn't it, for everyone involved. Isn't it exhausting? We think it gives us life. It doesn't give us life. Jesus said life is right there. Gossiping and slandering and murmuring and complaining. We think it promises us life. It just depletes us. It's exhausting for everyone involved. And Jesus wants you and he wants me to experience his rest, to experience his peace. And where do we find that? At the cross. We just sang it at the wonderful cross. He bids me come and what? Die. And find that I might live. That's Psalm 133. Come to the wonderful cross and die. Die to your wants and wishes and preferences. And you'll find that you actually live. As we humble ourselves and admit that we don't have all the answers, Jesus comes. What did he say? He said, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. My prayer is that the gospel that we believe on paper continues to create a gospel culture here, that we talk about Jesus all the time, that we forgive one another, that we love one another, that we assume the best in each other, that we look at Romans 12 and say, I'm going to do that because Jesus died for me. Jesus died for sinners. He died for me. I'm going to lay my life down for others. I'm going to let love be genuine because he died for me. I'm going to abhor what is evil and hold fast to what is good because he died for me. I'm going to love one another with brotherly affection because he died for me. I want us to glorify Jesus in this church. And I'm praying for unity. I'm praying that the Holy Spirit works a miracle in all of our hearts. And may we experience his blessing now and in the coming years. Now, we're going to fail at this, Okay. So let me dash your dreams, okay? We're going to mess this up. We're not going to be unified all the time because we're sinners. That's why there's grace. There is no condemnation. We are forgiven. We are cleansed. And we are free. Let's live in that reality, shall we? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. It's tough to hear because I'm a sinner father and I get up in arms about things and I need you forgive us we repent forgive us for wanting our way in our marriages and family and church and neighborhood businesses etc God we need you if you don't help us Holy Spirit we're going to mess this up we need a miracle to happen May we humble ourselves so that your blessing, so that unity flows down to this church, to our families, to our city and nation. We ask in Jesus' name.